All right, so in David's life, King David's life, David had two major failures. Now, the one that most of us have heard about, we'll talk about that later, the story with Bathsheba, that actually happened later on in his life. He was already king. He was in his 50s. But today we're going to talk about the other one. We're going to talk about the one that took place when David was a young man in his 20s. And I'm going to guess a lot of people aren't familiar with this one because this isn't quite as famous, if you will. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it, open an app, do whatever you like. Of course, I'll put the verses up on the screen. And the story goes like this. You remember last week we talked about David and the fact that he defeated the Philistine giant Goliath. Well, after David defeated Goliath, David's story went viral, if you will. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, Liars, the musical instrument, not the people who don't tell the truth, just so you know. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And I'm sure Saul went, yeah. And 15-year-old David, his ten thousands. And I'm sure Saul went, what? Because David was a 15-year-old boy. And everybody knew who he was. And, and they were writing songs about him. He was so famous. They were, they were tweeting about him, Okay and retweeting about him. He was a legend. And and while initially King Saul kind of was okay with that, he seemed enthusiastic, because here's a young man who seems determined, who seems devoted to me. This is great. But after David became famous, Saul started to get nervous. He began to notice that David was amassing a lot of influence and a lot of attention and a lot of power. Well, a king generally doesn't like that when a subject becomes more famous. We go to verse 8. Saul was very angry. The refrain that Saul killed his thousands and David killed his tens of thousands displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? So he's beginning to hear the footsteps. He's beginning to hear, "Uh uh-oh, this kid wants my job. From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, as we saw last week, King Saul was quite paranoid, so he watched David very carefully. The next day, Saul was so angry that he tried to hit David with his spear. Can you imagine that? you imagine like going to work and your boss is angry at you and a spear comes flying at you? And he didn't do it once, but he did it twice. But David was able to get out of the way because he's 15, he's nimble, right? So, right? But it wasn't before long that the Lord actually departed Saul and took up with David. We move on to verse 13. So Saul sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything David did, he had great success. Why? Because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful David was, Saul was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah, that's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So then Saul comes up with a more devious plan. He needs to get David out of his life. So Saul decides to bring David into his own family. 
Keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, was the attitude. And that way he figured he can keep them under control if he's in the family. So Saul offers his older daughter, Merab, for David to take as his wife, which is a thing we don't do anymore, which I'm sure most daughters are very happy about. But you did that back then. Well, to that, David responded like this in verse 18, who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? In other words, I'm not worthy. Because he wasn't from a wealthy family. He wasn't from a prominent family. Maybe also he was thinking, and I'm only 15. Like, that's kind of creepy. You know, I'm not really ready to settle down yet. But David turned the king's proposal down. Most people who turned a king proposal down didn't live very long. But David did. And time progressed, and Saul continued to be haunted by his fear of David's influence. And before long, Michal, Saul's other daughter, fell in love with David. Saul thought, okay, hmm, maybe I can use this moment to exert that control I need over David. Verse 22, so Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. We want you in the family, son. But Saul made Michal's price tag, if you will, her dowry, her price for her hand in marriage, very steep. He asked for a very steep price. And that price, if David wanted to raise it, was extremely dangerous. And I'm going to stop here for a minute. I'm not going to tell you what the dowry was, but it was so dangerous that Saul was kind of hoping David would die trying to raise it. It's not really a church-appropriate story because you have a lot of young kids here. I want to let your parents decide whether your kids need to see that or not. But if you're over 18, I suggest you read about it in 1 Samuel 18, verses 25 through 27. I'm telling you, read your Bible. You would not believe the stuff that is in your Bible. Anyway, the highly motivated David, though, he actually did it. He came up with the dowry and then some, and so he married Saul's daughter, Michal. And then also, he became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. But Saul's greatest fear was realized anyway, because everyone loved David. And David became powerful, and David became influential, and Saul became even more jealous. And this went on for seven years. Seven years. We don't like to wait seven weeks. Seven years. And for that next seven years, David continued to fall out of Saul's favor. Saul kept on sending David into dangerous battles, hoping David would die. And David just kept on winning and adding to his legend. So everything's blowing up in Saul's face. None of his plans are working. And Saul then kept trying to have David arrested or killed by some other means. But Jonathan, Saul's son, and Michal, Saul's daughter, kept tipping David off. Hey, man, this could be dangerous. You might want to go away. And that allowed David to stay safe, allowed him to keep moving away to safety. And King Saul's frustration with David kept on building and building and building until one day, before one of the major Jewish festivals, David said to Jonathan, here's what he said, 1 Samuel 20, verse 5, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. The king's invited me over for dinner on the new moon feast. Let me tell you a little bit about the new moon feast. The new moon feast was known in Hebrew as Yom Teruah, and that means the day of shouting. And so basically it means it's a day where the faithful gather together and they shout out the name of the Lord. They praise God verbally. 
And it was during the Babylonian exile, which was probably 400 years into the future from that point, it became known as the name we know it by today, the name Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year that a couple Sundays ago actually started. Now, being invited to dine with the king, you ever been on a cruise and you get invited to sit at the captain's table? It's kind of an honor. That's kind of like that, except more so. Being invited to dine with the king was a big deal. And it's an even bigger deal if you get invited to dine with the king on a, on a holiday, especially one of the holiest days of the year. But by that point, David and Saul had a terrible relationship, what with all the murders and stuff, you know, the murder attempts. So David said to Jonathan, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast. Tomorrow's Rosh Hashanah. I'm supposed to dine with the king. We go to verse, later on verse 5. But let me go and hide in the field. In other words, your father invited me to Rosh Hashanah dinner, but I ain't going. In fact, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to make myself scarce. I'm going to hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. So he's going to spend some time camping. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. So he had an alibi. Well, the next day at dinner, of course, David doesn't show up because he was out hiding in the field, just like he talked about with Jonathan. And Saul noticed. King Saul noticed that David wasn't there, but he didn't say anything about it because King Saul just figured, eh, maybe something happened to David, maybe he got stuck in traffic, whatever. Maybe he's ceremonially unclean. You can't come to dinner. You can't celebrate a holiday if you're ceremonially unclean. But we go to verse 27. The next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. So David's not showing up at all for dinners with Saul. And Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse, that's David, come to the meal either yesterday or today? Saul asked Jonathan, hey, what do, you, what do you know? You're his best friend. What do you know about David's absence? Why isn't he here? And Jonathan had a, remember, he had an excuse planned. He and David talked about this. So he offered up the excuse that he and David had agreed upon. But when Saul heard this kind of lame excuse, Saul's anger flared up. Verse 30 of Jonathan and said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. By the way, I know what you were thinking when I said that, and it has the same tone, so you're, you're right to be thinking that. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? You've sided with David to your own shame and to the shame of that mother who bore you? He's really going, really going hard against Jonathan's mom. So picture the scene. The whole family's sitting there at this big family dinner. You can imagine a Thanksgiving dinner, probably similar sitting around the king's table, day after a major feast, and Saul starts hurling insults about Jonathan and his mom. Like, how weird is that? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Like, what did she have to do with this? And how awkward must that have been for Jonathan's mom, who's probably sitting there at the dinner with them? Saul continued, you, my very own son, sided with David over me. I mean, the way Saul figured it, Jonathan was going to be king next. He would have succeeded his father as king. But David being around is going to mess the whole thing up. That's Saul's plan. Saul's plan is for his son to become king, but David's there, and the plan's not going to happen. And Saul's like, there's no way I'm standing for that. We go to verse 31. As long as the son of Jesse, David, lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. They're saying, Jonathan, you'll never be king as long as David's out there. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he, David, must die. And when Jonathan questioned his father, Saul threw a spear at him. 
you should probably keep spears out of Saul's grasp whenever you're talking to him. Like the guy can't stop hurling spears at people. Well, Jonathan was no dummy. Then Jonathan knew once his father had hurled a spear at him that his father intended to kill David. And with that, Jonathan went to find David to warn him that Saul means it this time. Saul is out for blood this time. And Jonathan told David, you've got to get out of here, man. You've got to leave town. Then David left, verse 42, and Jonathan went back to town. So I want to pause here for a quick inventory of where we are in the story so far. Okay, so we have David. He was 15 years old when he slew Goliath. Then for seven years, how old does that make him now? 22. For seven years, David risked his life for King Saul. But it didn't please Saul at all. In fact, it did just the opposite. It intimidated Saul. Saul wanted the 22-year-old David, dead. So alone and afraid, and having been rejected by the king, David was forced to flee, even though David had done nothing wrong. So then David says, you know what? Enough of this. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so this particular decision marked a shift in David's faith. See, up until that moment, and we talked about it last week, up until that moment, David was known all over by all the people for his unshakable faith. I mean, people literally, and I mean the word literally, literally, not the way it's used today, literally sang songs about David and his faith. But that didn't seem to matter to David anymore. He wasn't thinking, yeah, the people love me. I don't need to take matters into my own hands. God's got me. He didn't think that anymore. And when we read it now, we think, David, why? Why'd you lose your faith in God? You were doing so well. God never let you down before. But David did what we sometimes do, didn't he? See, there are people in our world, in our sphere of influence, in our circle who know us for our faith. And those people are looking to us now, or they've looked to us before, and they wonder the same thing about us sometimes. Why'd you do that? Like, I thought you were a faithful person. Why did you do that? Why are you freaking out? Why are you running away? Why are you abandoning everything you've always stood for? What's wrong with you? And we can all look back at a time in our lives when we did the same thing. We, we've all done it. And we, we might now even ask ourselves, why did I do that? Like, why did I do that? Why did I go to that place I shouldn't have gone or... Why did I consume the thing I shouldn't have consumed or drink the thing I shouldn't have drunk? Why did I talk to that person? Why did I buy that thing? Why didn't I avoid that situation? We ask ourselves those questions, and looking back, we can answer all those questions easily. Because at the time we made those decisions, we felt abandoned or angry or afraid. And we felt that way. Our natural reaction, because we're just people, our natural reaction was just to panic. All right, back to our text. 1 Samuel 21.1, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Quick explanation here. Back then, the Jews weren't yet centered in the city of Jerusalem, in the holy city. There was no temple yet. The temple would be built by David's son Solomon. So all they had was a tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was a big, elaborate tent with thick cloth, but it was a tent. And the Jews traveled around with the tabernacle, and wherever they stopped, they set up the tabernacle, and God's presence was 
believed to be in the middle of that tabernacle. So they would set it up wherever they camped, and that was the place of worship. So David went to where the tabernacle was, which was the city of Nob, and saw Ahimelech, the high priest. Now, Ahimelech was a little bit freaked out when David showed up. He trembled when he met David, and he said, David, how come it's just you? Why are you alone? Why is nobody here with you? See, David's visit was pretty unusual. You see, as a warrior, David typically traveled with thousands of personal warriors. He went with an entourage, but an army entourage, okay? But David here arrives alone. And if you remember where David was prior to this, he was hiding in a field for a couple of days. So he was a bit out of sorts. It looked like he slept in his clothes because he had. And that freaked Ahimelech out. And he's like, Dave, they were on a first name basis. Dave, what's going on here? Like, why are you here? So even though David, who was known for his integrity, even though he was known for his integrity, he lied. So this is a lie. And here's what he said. He said, the king, King Saul, sent me on a mission. And he said to me, shh, this is a secret mission. No one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. Shh. And as for my men, don't worry. I arrange with them. They're going to meet me later on. David lied. So why did David lie? Because David was afraid. And when we're afraid, or when we're angry, or when we're alone, we tend to drift away from the way that God wants us to go. So David told Ahimelech that he was on a secret mission for Saul and that his men, who were, by the way, in on the secret, that they would follow along later, okay? Now, lies like that, as maybe you have experience, I certainly do myself, they grow deeper over time. See, David lied because he wanted Ahimelech to help him out. But that lie, like most lies, would have a cost. And that cost would be to Ahimelech and his whole family. Now, David next asked Ahimelech this. He says, Hey, you got anything to eat around here? That's what he said. What do you have on hand? How about give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find? So David shows up at Nob without any provisions. He was living in a field, okay? So he doesn't bring food, he doesn't bring water, he doesn't bring anything like that. So he says, hey, you got anything to eat? That was totally weird. And Ahimelech very hesitantly says to David, uh, yeah, I don't have much. I don't have any regular bread, ordinary bread on hand. I do have some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from the women. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. As a part of the Sabbath worship, the priests would have bread on the altar to the Lord. And so they didn't waste any of this bread. They weren't a wasteful culture. Anything that wasn't used during the Sabbath worship was available to the priest to eat. It was kind of like the, the tabernacle meal plan. Okay, so all the priests were on the tabernacle meal plan, they get to eat the consecrated food. But because the bread had been consecrated, in order to eat it, you had to be ceremonially clean. That's what provided the men have kept themselves from the women means. So what does David do? He lied again. And he told Ahimelech that he and his men, remember there were no men, okay? So he's lying again. He said, no, 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 we're, we're clean. We're ceremonially clean. So if you're keeping score, now David's lied two times. So the same David, whom we saw last week, proclaiming his hope in God and his trust in God, he'd fallen even further into the pit. And David continued to fall. Verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? Like, 
I didn't bring food. I didn't bring water. Didn't bring my men. I forgot a weapon, too. I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. No, because he was hiding in a field and he didn't have anything, right? Now, I imagine it was here that Ahimelech started to get seriously suspicious. Hmm, this is odd. Our most famous warrior shows up here unannounced, without any food, without a weapon, without any men, looking like he slept in his clothes, and he's asking me, the priest, to provide all of this for him? And he doesn't seem to care what I give him? He doesn't seem to care what food I provide or what weaponry I have? He's like, what the heck? What's going on here? And so what follows adds a bit of drama to the scene. Verse 9, the priest replied, well, hmm, there is one weapon around here, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah seven years ago, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want that sword, that famous sword, the sword you used to cut Goliath's head off, take it. There's no sword here, but that one, there weren't swords in the temple, generally speaking. Of all the weapons, though, the priests could have had, he had that same weapon that made David famous in the first place. The sword of Goliath. The sword that David had used seven years earlier to slay the giant. What a great plot twist. Now that should have caused David to shake his head. That should have woken him up. Oh, what was I thinking? Man, this is getting crazy. This is the same weapon that was wielded against me and God's people by our enemy Goliath with whom God, against all odds, delivered into my hands when I was a 15-year-old boy. That should have woken him up, but it didn't. That courageous, faithful, determined shepherd boy, he was gone. He was nowhere to be found, the old David. And in that moment, David had no faith. David had no faith. All he could feel was his own fear. All he could feel was his own anger. All he could feel was his own loneliness. Have you ever been there? You ever been in that place where you're so afraid that you can't feel the faith you used to have in God? You're just afraid or you're lonely or you're angry. And he says this, these three giants, anger, fear, and loneliness, have the potential to cause all of us to forget the defeated giants in our past, to forget the things we've already accomplished through God. These three giants have the potential to undermine our faith in God based on what God has done in the past. So what David did next was something he would regret for the rest of his life. Of that sword, David said, there is none like it. I'll take it. Give it to me. So foregoing his God, David took that sword and in an attempt to solve all of his problems without God, but to solve all of his problems on his own, David fled from Saul with Goliath's sword. So he took the sword, now he leaves. He goes out of the purview of Saul, away from Saul's priest. He runs headlong into a disastrous outcome. And it's here that we should be able to see how our story intersects with David's story. Because so many times in our lives, when we need God the most, that's the time we're least likely to lean in his direction. You see, in those times, we're tempted to run away from God rather than running toward God. So many times in our lives, we opt for the things that have never worked before. 
and the things that we almost always regret. And like so many things in life, we can clearly see these situations coming when they're happening to somebody else. Like if it's happening to a friend of ours, we see it. But when it's happening to us, we struggle. We can't see it in our own life. Think about it. If you think about it right now, you probably know somebody in your life who's making terrible decisions. And those decisions are based upon anger, fear, or a sense of loneliness. And you see it in other people, and when you see it, you think to yourself, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. You're just going to make things worse for yourself. Don't do that, honey. You think you should do that? Don't do that. You're going to regret it. I mean, it's obvious when you see it in other people, but it's nearly impossible to see in yourself. And why is that? Because you've convinced yourself, and we've convinced ourselves that we're different. We always do that. Yeah, I know it didn't work out for you, but I'm different. It'll work for me. My situation's different. That's what David was thinking. He's thinking, this plan of mine, oh, this is going to work. And he was also thinking, just like we also think, and anyway, if God were really with me, I wouldn't be in this pickle in the first place. You know, it's relatively easy to trust God when everything's going well, right? And it's also relatively easy to trust God when you don't have anything to trust him with. And you don't have anything to trust him for. And here's what I mean by that. Particularly when you're young, but there are other instances too. Before you're really self-sufficient and self-supporting, it's relatively easy to make bold promises to God. God, I give you my whole life. I'll do anything for you and all that. When there's no one really relying upon you for their own survival, it's easier. God feels so much more accessible to you when that's your situation Also, when things are going great, it's also relatively easy to sing worship songs or to serve other people or or to pray prayers or to trust God or to pray for your friends going through difficult times. It's easy to do that when you're not in the midst of it. But it becomes harder, exponentially harder, to trust God when the things that we value start to slip away. But it's precisely then when the stakes get higher and the pressure on our lives has increased It's precisely then that our faith in God must also increase. Now we go back to David's story. David took Goliath's sword, he fled from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. David deserted Saul and ran to the enemy. David went to Gath. If that sounds familiar, that is Goliath's hometown. Remember, Goliath was from Gath. And that city was ruled by the Philistine king, Achish. David was in a full-on panic. He was melting down. He was losing his mind, so he ran to the enemy. And when he arrived in Gath, the Philistines, remember, he had defeated them seven years ago by killing their giant. And they're like, isn't that the guy who killed Goliath? What's he doing here? And they didn't know what to think. Verse 11, the servants of Achish said to their king, hey, isn't this David, the king of the land, Isn't he the only, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain thousands, David's slain tens of thousands. Like they knew, the the Philistines knew the songs that the Israelites sang about David. But as a result of his fear or his anger or his loneliness, David tried to defect and join Saul's enemies. He tried to join the Philistines, the same Philistines whom he'd led his nation to defeat seven years earlier. But once he entered their camp and heard how they remembered him, he suddenly 
came back to his senses. David's like, what am I doing here? Have I lost my mind? He knew at that moment he'd made a serious mistake for Samuel 21, 12. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Oh no, what have I done? David's anger and fear and loneliness had put him in a world of hurt. Now, if this was a Netflix series, this would be the cliffhanger upon which today's episode would end. What would David do now? Roll the credits, right? That's where it would end. But look at this next verse. This is such a cool story. David pretended to be insane in their presence. I got to get out of here. What am I going to do? Pretend you're insane. Okay, so David's deciding to sandbag them. So here's what he does. This is funny. He acted like a madman. He starts, he goes wild. He makes marks on the doors of the gate. He's scratching at the gate. He's kicking at the gate. He's punching the gate. He's letting the saliva drip down his beard. Ah, he's going crazy, right? And the Philistines are looking at him. And they're like, this guy's nuts. The ruse worked. So Akish, the Philistine king, says to his servants, look at that man. He's, he's crazy. He's insane. Why'd you, why'd you bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen? that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Why did you bring this crazy guy to me? The Philistine king was like, get this crazy guy out of here. I don't have time for this nonsense. So from there, the 22-year-old David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. David was afraid and angry and felt abandoned. And he didn't know what else to do, but he starts to come back to his senses here. So from the cave, he goes to a stronghold in Moab. A stronghold is a place, we don't really have strongholds here, but a place that is fortified against attacks. So he went to a safe place, sort of a safe house, where he was able to secure his family's safety. And it was at this place that David encountered another prophet, a prophet by the name of Gad. And he sought from Gad God's will for his life. So he says, okay, prophet, remember prophets speak on behalf of God. He says from, to, to Gad, hey, what's God's will for my life? So David is slowly getting back to himself. He's slowly becoming David again. But there had already been damage. The damage had been done. See, when David was back there with Ahimelech, looking for bread, looking for a weapon, somebody was listening in on their conversation. I'm telling you, wouldn't this make a great Netflix series? There was another person there listening. His name was Doeg. Doeg worked for Saul. Doeg was Saul's chief herdsman. And he saw David there and overheard David's conversations with Ahimelech, but he didn't really overhear everything. He only heard part of it. He only heard enough to be confused. He only heard enough to go ahead and make things really bad for Ahimelech, the high priest. So Doeg went back to King Saul, and he said, you know, your priest Ahimelech fed David and armed David and is siding against you with David, which was not true. He didn't hear it correctly. Doeg said this. And what's Doeg doing? He, he's, he's trying to get in the king's good graces too, right? Everybody's this is a power play. 1 Samuel 22.10, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. Ahimelech also gave David provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. In other words, Doeg said, David asked Ahimelech to go to the Lord and get advice for him. So verse 11 then the king sent for Ahimelech. So Saul says, okay, bring Ahimelech to me. He says, send Ahimelech, the son of 
Ahitub, and all the men of his family who were priests at Nob, and they all came to King Saul. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? Okay, he didn't conspire against him, but that's what Saul believed. Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, that's David, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. None of those things were happening, mind you, but that's what he thought. And Himelech says, what are you talking about, king? King, 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 you got it all wrong. Verse 14, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? Come on, man, not David. He's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguard. He's highly respected in your household. Verse 15, was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? In other words, he's come to me before. What are you talking about? Of course not. Of course he's come to me before. Let not the king accuse your servant, Ahimelech, or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. In other words, David isn't disloyal, King Saul. I'm not disloyal to you. There's nothing special about the other day. I've advised David before. There's no plot against you. But remember, King Saul was paranoid. He wasn't going to have any of it. So here's what he said next. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. You will surely die, Ahimelech. And by the way, I'm not going to stop at you, you and your whole family. David made Saul very jealous. Saul was very paranoid about David. So then, verse 17, the king ordered the guards at his side. He says, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials are like, mm, we're not going to do that. We're not killing David. We like David. The king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king's Guards wouldn't kill Ahimelech, they wouldn't kill David, so they refused Saul's order. But Doeg, Doeg saw an opportunity here. Remember, he was the head of the, he was the kind of head of the, the flocks. So he saw an opportunity to raise his own standing with Saul. So he offered to kill him for him. He offered to do the deed. So then the king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck all them down, struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore linen ephod. In other words, he killed 85 priests. And Saul wasn't done yet. Saul then orders Doeg to wipe out Nob too. And Doeg also put the sword to Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women and children and infants and its cattle and its donkeys and its sheep. He killed almost everybody. Almost everybody. One person escaped. One son of Ahimelech son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. So Abiathar shows up, he fills David in, tells David all the terrible stuff that happened, and David was heartbroken. So then David says to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. David says, he realizes, he says, I'm responsible for all this. I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. David was responsible for the death of an entire village, including infants, including animals. Even though taking matters into our own hands sometimes feels good, it doesn't always turn out so good. We're going to continue with the story of David next week. So as we wrap up today, I want to focus this on four questions, and then we'll be done. 
as we consider how this story applies to our lives. But before we get to our questions, are you sitting out there wondering today, how did you know I needed to hear this story? Do you feel like someone who knows you and knows what you're going through came up to me this week and said, you know what, if you could preach on this, it would be really helpful. Do you feel that a lot in church? I do. That's why this is so important. You see, the things addressed in Scripture are things that are common to all of us. That's one of the things that makes Scripture so amazing, is that this story, which is 3,000 years old, is as applicable today as it was then. No matter who you are, there's going to be a time in your life where your anger pushes you to do something that you know you shouldn't do. There's going to be a time in your life where your fear and loneliness, if you're not careful, are going to lead you to start thinking about things and considering things that you tell another person, don't do that. But somehow for you, it's different. Because those emotions are very powerful. So here's the first question I want you to consider. What is your fear, anger, or loneliness causing you to consider now that you've never considered before? What risk what relational risk, financial risk, physical risk, psychological risk, what risk could your fear, anger, or loneliness cause you to consider? And then I want you to answer this question. Have you ever seen that actually work out for anybody you know? No, it never works out. But what is your fear, anger, or loneliness causing you to consider that you've never considered before? Second question. Who is your anger, fear, or loneliness causing you to consider that you shouldn't consider? Now, this can be in the area of a personal relationship. You're angry with a spouse, something like that. It could be a business partnership. You're looking around, trying to get out of the business you're in and looking at something else you shouldn't be. How about a friendship? You've got some friends, but you're thinking about going to the other people who really aren't good for you. Who? Is your anger, fear, or loneliness causing you to consider that you shouldn't be considering? All right, moving on. Who besides you do your considerations put at risk? See, it's not all about us. People depend on us. People love us. People are connected to us. Who are you putting at risk by these bad decisions you're thinking about? And this is the question that ultimately got David's attention. Who besides you do these options that were never options before who do they put at risk besides you? I already know the answer to the question. It's the people you love the most. It's the people who love you the most. They're at risk. Who else is at risk? Who else's future hangs in the balance of your personal decision to give in to an impulse caused by fear, anger, or isolation? And lastly, what advice would you give to someone who isn't you? If you saw this happening to a friend of yours, what would you tell them? Because that's what you should tell yourself. Isn't it the case that when it's someone else, you can see it clearly, but when it's you, you think the rules don't apply? You do realize that you're not an exception to the rule, right? You, you all get that by now, I hope. Yeah, you're unique, but your experiences aren't all that unique. And yeah, you're one of a kind, but your experience isn't one of a kind. As King Solomon, King David's son, would say in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. We always look at the world and the politics and all the junk going on. and go, oh, it's the worst it's ever been. No, it isn't. 
You all have access to the interwebs. Look it up. It all happened before. And that's why it's so easy for us to know what other people ought to do. Because it's the same thing that we ought to do. And the interesting thing about this question is that we already know how David would advise us. Because later on, a grown-up King David would give us this advice. Here's what he would say in Psalm 9. This is written way after, while he's already a grown-up. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold. There's that word again, in times of trouble. The Lord is the refuge, not a drug, not alcohol, not another person, not getting into deeper debt, not buying a new thing or a new place, not something but someone is a refuge. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. The Lord is a stronghold. The Lord is a safe place to run to in times of trouble. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've gone to Jesus and you've told him, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I believe that you died for my sins, but you rose from the dead. And I turn from those sins and I turn to you and I give you my heart and I give you my life and I promise to follow you now and forever as my Lord and Savior. If you are a follower, then God is the relationship you can run to when you feel oppressed. When there are times of trouble, David would tell us that he tried to take refuge in his abilities and in his ability to control the outcome in his life, and that failed. That turned out tragically for him. David would later write this, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. David ultimately figured it out. He thought he'd been forsaken. He thought that the bad things wouldn't have happened to him if God were with him. He felt forsaken. He felt abandoned. But on reflection, he realized he hadn't been forsaken. He hadn't been abandoned. God was with him the whole time. And David told us not only would he tell us, he did tell us, don't make that same mistake. All right, last thing and then we're done. A thousand years after this event, David's most famous descendant, who was actually born in Bethlehem, the city of David, would look into the eyes of some angry, frightened, abandoned Israelites. And he would say this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because when you feel forsaken, you're mistaken. God is with you. That's what David would tell us. That's what Jesus told us. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that they were preserved for us over these years. We thank you that they apply to our lives and they give us hope and they allow us to see our future. So God, as we travel on and we're going through the challenges and the difficulties and we're feeling abandoned or afraid or angry. God, allow us to see you. Allow us to lean on you. Allow us to put our faith and trust in you to work things out for your good and for your glory. God, we don't know how you do it. We're not really sure why you do it. 
but we have great faith in the fact that you do. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, and we look forward to seeing how you work in our lives from this day forward in Jesus' name. Amen.